APSA Corporate and Investment Banking lead the conversation on future investment possibilities and sustainable growth opportunities in resources and energy. What does it do for our country and is that actually a good thing or will it actually cripple us further financially? So I'm actually quite worried, to be honest, about the commitments that were made and if it actually doesn't hinder our country more than help it. Matching foresight with sustainable possibilities to unlock your business's potential. APSA Insights, hosted by Bruce Whitfield. Brought to you by APSA Corporate and Investment Banking. Welcome to this APSA Insights podcast. I'm Bruce Whitfield. And today with Sharan Moodley and Heidi Barrens, who are the co-heads of sustainable finance at APSA Corporate and Investment Bank, we're talking about mitigating the climate crisis and driving inclusive growth in Africa. That's such an important topic because we've had the COP26 gathering. We've had lots of big promises, lots of hot air, lots of private jets, lots of discussion about the future and lots of interesting commitments coming through as well. But are these commitments that the world can afford to make if it is going to be a fair world in which everybody can live? Heidi Barnes, let's start with you. Give me a sense of it, please. I mean, your take out on COP26 and the big commitments that were made and all of these promises that are made? Are those first world commitments or those commitments that a continent like Africa can actually live with? My honest view is that if I look at the commitments made for South Africa and the big deal that was touted between ourselves and the UK and the US, etc., I'm really worried because if you read the fine print, it's a commitment to mobilize finance, which doesn't mean that we will get finance. It means it's a promise to possibly mobilize finance. And then the question is, what does that mean and what does it actually do for our country? So if we think about that, a little bit further, you know, it could mean that DFI funding is mobilized and a lot of that funding might look like loans that might have concessions, but what is even a concessional loan? Is it one and a half percent a concession compared to the normal interest rate? Is it 15 basis points? How much is that concession? And if we look at our current situation and the ESCOM balance sheets and a country and kind of the interrelation between ESCOM and our fiscus, you know, if we now load up more US dollar denominated debt or euro denominated debt to try and help ESCOM decarbonize and become more green, what does it do for our country? And is that actually a good thing or will it actually cripple us further financially? So I'm actually quite worried, to be honest, about the commitments that were made and if it actually doesn't hinder our country more than help it. It's such an important point you make there, Heidi, and I'm glad that you did. Sharan, is she overreacting, though, to the downside risk? We're sitting in a world that we have to transform. 87% of the power, for example, that we generate in South Africa comes from coal. We have to wean ourselves offered somehow. Is the downside as serious as uh, your colleague Heidi puts it? Yes, Bruce. I think for the emerging markets, I would have to agree with that. I think that the reliance on you know what we see in Africa, not just in South Africa, but across a lot of our other markets in the continent as well, there's more dependency on fossil fuels and in coal in particular. A lot of the climate pledges that are being made or climate action plans that are being put forth, they speak to much more kind of radical commitments in, in the shorter term without fully taking into consideration the social ramifications that, that would come from it as well. I think what's come out of this COP26 is we're seeing a lot more consideration, especially from the other emerging markets, countries like Philippines, as as an example, really bringing that to the fore, where now they're saying that, okay, if we had to take these radical steps to fight climate change, what impact does it have on our social bearing as well? Because
because you know there's always this balance from between you know lives and, and livelihoods as, as an example but i think in the emerging markets i would have to say that we have to be a lot more cognizant of the social implications that are coming from it so do we have to look then heidi at structuring these deals far more differently to what's been proposed so far from what we know and we don't know everything we've got to be very very careful about how these deals are structured because yes we may mitigate the worst of a climate crisis 30 or 40 years from now but the consequences in the short term actually are potentially more devastating to the vast majority of people on this continent. Yeah, absolutely. I think the way it's structured, the type of debt, the denomination of debt, should it be debt? Should there be equity investments or should there be more grant funding? I think a huge part of COP, which has been disappointing, if there would be a price on carbon that was globally accepted, it would be a lot more reasonable for ESCOM to decarbonize because then there'd be a huge amount of kind of new revenue stream that they could earn by saying we're going to shut down this coal-fired power station and therefore we're actually going to earn a huge amount of revenue and it doesn't kind of incur another amount of debt. But that's a huge structural kind of international change that would be required. Now, how do we secure sustainable finance then? Because that is the, the key issue. It's what we can afford. And all countries around the world have got elevated levels of debt since the COVID crisis. Every, you know, the United States has printed money. South Africa has borrowed more money in order to survive this particular crisis. Now we're expected to sort of add insult to injury on this, Heidi. How do we create this sustainable finance environment? What do we need to do? So what we are doing in South Africa is is kind of twofold. So National Treasury is leading a huge kind of project with regards to defining a taxonomy. So that's really what that means is defining a very clear definition of saying, this is what we define as sustainable activities. But in my mind, that's not the only thing you need to do. The other kind of portion of that is that you need kind of two pricing curves. You need vanilla pricing for vanilla debt, but you need concessional pricing or kind of a benefit if you're channeling funding into things that make the world a better place that kind of fits under that taxonomy. And in a way that that should then be sustainable financing. And the whole idea is in financing these activities that could be affordable housing or renewable energy, et cetera, et cetera. You're kind of helping the societal good and supporting sustainable development, but also the externalities that are not priced into other transactions are kind of being compensated for by these transactions. And what you require actually is twofold. So you one need to define it, but you also, in my mind, need a difference between the pricing. Because if that difference doesn't exist, in my mind, sustainable finance won't be completely true to its cause. Um, Shirang, let me be blunt. Should we be getting the rich world to be paying for this anyway, considering that the rich world is willing to give us concessional financing, and that's fine, but it's not concessional financing we can afford. This is not our problem. This is the world's problem. Should we not be saying to them, okay, you want to solve this problem so badly, you're willing to give us discounted loans. That's great. But how about you actually stump up some of the cash yourselves uh, because simply we can't afford to do it. Is that realistic? I think it's a shared problem, Bruce. I think firstly, there's the question of size and, and magnitude. And then there's a the question of how do we solve it collectively? As you say, it is a global problem. And I don't think we could rely just on you know, the more developed nations to, uh, to to solve it on behalf of the emerging markets. If you look at the kind of deal that's been struck with South Africa of $8.5 billion, it's a, a drop in the ocean compared to $3 trillion it buys 
Biden was talking about, you know, that he actually wanted just for US and so for climate and social projects. He ended up getting one and a half trillion in the end, but still pushing for, for a lot of them. We also know that Africa as a whole, you know, is, is looking at you know 10 to 15 percent of total uh, global emissions. So there's also that question of fairness or equality when it comes to this. There's also the question of climate adaptation that Africa needs to solve in large for itself because we can rely on financing, concessional financing to some extent from, from, from other nations and that will go some way to solving it. But there's also within the continent itself or within the country, how do we really look at kind of adapting ourselves for what's coming down the line? Uh, there seems to be still a growing movement with all the climate scientists that one and a half and two degree scenarios are almost more inevitable to question of when, not if. And we really just need to gear ourselves uh, up for that. So I think that the developed nations can certainly assist in that because, you know, just by sheer magnitude, they can afford to give off a lot more at better rates to help countries like South Africa. But it's still incumbent upon us to really gear up for moving our own operations in a way that's uh, more sustainable. Uh, but Heidi, we sit on great natural resources. We sit on great gas resources. We sit on great coal resources. And these are accessible to us in financially acceptable prices. It, it, it would be a shame for us not to be able to exploit our own natural resources. And if the world is going to stop us from exploiting those natural resources, Resources, surely it needs to pay for, for the privilege of, of asking us to do so. Well, Bruce, I mean, that very much speaks to the point I was making earlier around kind of the idea of a, a carbon price. So if we have these natural resources and and a lot of the wealthy countries or the global north, as it's often said, you know, they're still reaping the benefits or they've built up incredibly industrial wealthy nations by using the resources that were at their behest at the time, you know, and maybe that's 100 years ago, but that's still led to the crisis and the situation we're in today. So if we're asked not to do the same, I do think, you know, we do need a global carbon price and we should be paid to keep those resources in the ground. And I think that's the failure of the system and the policy, the fact that that's not happening. The consequences, uh, Sharon, of going the way we're going and falling prey, I suppose, to a global agenda without taking into consideration the realistic restrictions that Africa has got. What is the consequence of not paying proper attention to the realities on the ground. I think it's go back to the point that we were discussing earlier or alluding to earlier. It's really the consequence from a social point of view. When, when we, we talk about you know sustainable financing and we talk about you know moving in the right direction and we talk about offsets, there's the difference between financing such initiatives and actually having an impact in, in a in in, in the real environment. And, and that's another growing narrative that we're seeing that you know, you're seeing finance, so much financing going towards something, but you're not always seeing the same impact in terms of reduced emissions in the, in the air. So one thing is actually saying, okay, we're going to move the direction. The other way is saying that we haven't made the right impact that we want to, and we're still going to bear the ramifications of climate change at some point down the line. So all these dangers that we're speaking around droughts or, or fires or you know, crop yields or things like that that are actually going to be affected Africa is going to be hit severely hard from that at, at a certain point in time. That's why, again, adaptation is a key consideration here. And all of those issues that I, that I mentioned will have further ramifications on the social standing. And again, South Africa doesn't have the same kind of level of social infrastructure and support that a lot of the developed nations uh, have as well. And we saw a glimpse of that in, in COVID. And this would just be a similar situation exacerbated if it's, if it's not. Still to come in this EPSA Insights podcast. 
those are kind of some of the ideals that I wish for and and possibly kind of along the way is that that it's done through collective action that individuals businesses regulators policymakers governments every piece needs to do its bit and every piece needs to work together and and manage that in a very cohesive kind way in which it creates cohesion instead of fear hate and anger absa insights so what is the least worst scenario for us, Shiran? I mean, we, we, we're not going to fix this. If we don't fix it, we run huge problems in terms of environmental constraints into the future. If we do fix it, we, uh, in a way that the world perhaps envisages right now, we run the risk of compromising this generation in a way that Northern Hemisphere generations are not compromised. How do we get to a fair and happy medium? That's a good question, Bruce. <laughs> Look, I think it's a combination of constructs and combinations of support that need to be pulled all in the same direction to get to that point. A lot of the um, you know, financial institutions on Africa are taking a more balanced view around financing such activities when it comes to, say, fossil fuel, because we know that there's a greater dependency on it, both for economically and socially within the continent. So where the EU, as an example, might take a much more binary view and say, we're not touching you know, this industry or this sector or this client, uh, we don't always have that same liberty uh, as well. At the same time, I think in terms of gearing ourselves up for adaptation and looking ahead, we also need to push the dial as far as we can in terms of how we can really help ourselves and help the broader economy move towards a much more sustainable operating model. And that entails the regulatory support, that entails financing the right things, that entails things like the taxonomy and classification, and that also entails much more transparent disclosure. So those are the multiple levers that we need to pull. Heidi, specifically, how would you like to see the at least worst case scenario, if I'm not contradicting myself in that very complicated question? At least worst case scenario, what I would like to see. It, it has kind of a number of components. So one is a huge amount of mitigation efforts. So kind of a very reasonable and well-managed transition for South Africa from a coal and carbon dependent economy to a carbon neutral economy in which kind of jobs are transferred, in which communities are saved, in which kind of dignity is maintained of our South African people. And in in many ways, kind of jobs are improved and people's livelihoods are improved. And simultaneously, it would really be around mitigation efforts. I'm up at night often thinking about water, the water crisis that our country is heading towards, the impact it could have on agriculture and food. And it's kind of, I guess the the least worst case scenario is around that our food system stays stable but possibly more kind of creative, more nature-based solutions are implemented that really support society, but also the planet. Those are kind of some of the ideals that I wish for. And and possibly kind of along the way is that that it's done through collective action, that individuals, businesses, regulators, policymakers, governments, every piece needs to do its bit and every piece needs to work together and, and manage that in a very cohesive, kind way in which it creates cohesion instead of fear, hate and anger. Uh, we don't have capacity to operate at an optimal level, even in good times when things are going our way in the traditional sense. Who pulls all of this together? I, yeah, I, I really don't want to suggest ineptitude within the reams of government, local, provincial or, or national. I just wonder how on earth we pull together what is the equivalent, I suppose, of a World War II evacuation from, from the beaches um, in 1940. I mean, it just feels like a huge, an enormous task. Heidi? 
It's a great question. One, it's around what support can government give, but I also think it's around what support can the private sector and the NGO sector play and give and kind of also individuals. I think there's a huge amount of resource and knowledge and, and power and activity and energy. And I think relying on one particular kind of arm to do it, I'm not sure it's working. Everyone needs to pull together. In an ideal world, it would be government, but I think our government is incredibly resource constrained. So I think it's really a question around how can we drive collective action through industry, um, through NGO and through government together in a very cohesive manner. Sharon, is there a commercial opportunity here to get people to do the right thing? You know, we, we often look to 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 uh, the sense of togetherness and mutual well-being. Uh, I, I wonder if the commercial incentive is not the most powerful tool here to get solutions to a seemingly intractable problem. I, th- I think there's definitely a commercial incentive or opportunity or incentive present when it comes to you know how we talk about decarbonizing our environment and, and transitioning our, our own economy to a more sustainable future. I think the the question that comes up is more of a moral one, which is you know how much commercial profit would one be willing to take, any party really, when you're really looking to drive something that's doing good for a much bigger picture as well. So we're seeing sustainability across all facets now because the globe has, you know, eventually woken up and said, you know, this is something that's of critical importance and urgency. So we're seeing a lot of funds channeled towards sustainable initiatives and sustainable projects. And with that comes massive opportunity all across the value chain. But at the same time, it's being viewed as driving sustainable transition in a more business as usual manner. And I think one of the components that have to be considered is how do we really flatten the curve, if I can use that terminology, and get a much bigger pool of assets driving towards the same goal whilst reducing our kind of commercial uh, incentive. Uh, Heidi, we, it's a race against time. I mean, there's no mucking about here. There isn't time to, to debate the best way forward. Um, surely we've just got to get started. And I, and I wonder how ideally you would like to see the African continent evolve over the next five years in terms of beginning to reach the goal of a sustainable future at the same time as preserving lives and livelihoods across our continent? I think it would really be around how does Africa become energy independent and kind of also become a industrial powerhouse in its own right. So around becoming a global leader in green hydrogen, in renewable energy, but also instead of just being the place where natural resources are mined that are needed for battery technology, that it also becomes a continent in which that battery technology is produced and made and then exported from instead of to. If those things happen, I think that would create a huge amount of wealth and equity in a sense across the continent. You cannot lead a transition like this without leaving a population better off. If you're going to make people worse off, they're going to resent it and push back against it. Surely the way to do this is to uplift communities and really have a drive that makes people feel like if they have to make a sacrifice, it's a sacrifice worth making. It's interesting because that whole conversation depends on where you are on the spectrum of wealth. Yeah. Because a very, very small percentage of the world uses a huge percentage of the energy that's required. Uh, And there's lots of research around this as well. If you uplift people to a specific level, then they can start caring about the environment because their basic needs are met. And they can start caring about recycling and how much energy they're using and emissions and all these wonderful things. But if you're worried about putting food on the table, then all those things are very, very far away from your kind of mindscape. You've got people 
a small portion of the global population that is incredibly wealthy, that has incredible amounts of resources. And if everyone was to get to that level, I'm not sure that we can maintain that as a globe. But if everyone was at a, a level where there was enough, but not too much, you know, that that could be something that the globe could most probably support. So I do think, I mean, the incentive is for, for those that are kind of on the underprivileged side that don't have resources, there is so much incentive for them to, to get more. But the challenge is really on the other side of the scale where people have so much and such incredible lives with so many opportunities. Are they willing to give up something to kind of help the other side of the equation? Well, I suppose time will tell. My thanks to Heidi Barnes and also to Sharan Mudley talking about sustainability, the complexity of sustainability. You thought COP26 was going to solve the problem. It's just begun to lift the lid on the problem. Thanks very much, guys, for joining us. Expert advice and data-driven insights that unlock your business's potential. APSA Insights, matching foresight with sustainable possibilities. Brought to you by APSA Corporate and Investment Banking. For more, visit absainsights.co.za.